Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, the author Jill Leovi is in the studio to talk about her book, Ghetto Side. It's a fascinating conversation, and you will want to stay tuned for that. Joining me is my usual co-host, Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Hey, Seth. Lori, where's Tom? No one knows. I think he's in Transnistria. But he's going to participate in this interview with Jill Leovi that we recorded earlier, is he not? Yes, he is. So if you're uh, a Tom Lutz fan, stay tuned. He shows up in that pre-taped interview. We are recording this after both conventions. And Lori, I want to get your sense of where we are as a nation. Are we all getting ready to expatriate? Yes. I mean, there's always those Facebook posts that you get where your friend's hair is on fire and they're freaking out and you might feel, you know, calm down. Things are, it's going to be okay. Well, I had a real hair on fire moment this morning. Today was the day that President Obama said he is unfit to hold office. He meaning Donald Trump. Donald Trump. He who, who does not even need to be named. And we should say today, we are recording this on Tuesday, August 2nd. Right. Today is the day that Obama says to the nation, to the Republican leadership, he is not fit to hold office. And I'm thinking, you know, nothing like this I've ever heard in my lifetime in the political arena. And I'm also thinking... One of the most recent things that Donald Trump has said is, if I don't get elected, something is fishy, something is off, and people are going to be upset. And he's been fomenting violence so incrementally throughout the campaign that today— I woke up and my hair was on fire. I was like, this guy is going to foment violence. He is delegitimizing the process, with a, which is a big problem, obviously. But I do think that in the event there's violence, I think it will be mostly his supporters driving their scooters, waving their canes, and banging their walkers on the sidewalk. So your hair is not on fire today. My hair, today. what's left of it, is not on fire. Well, I'm willing to try to emulate you on this. So should we listen to the interview with Giuliovi? I think we should. Let's do. Okay. Jill Leovi is a longtime reporter for the Los Angeles Times. She wrote a terrific book called Ghetto Side. It came out last year. It's now available in paperback. She has been kind enough to join us in the studio. Better late than never. Jill, welcome to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you. For the Times, you wrote a blog called The Homicide Report. What was the genesis of that? You know, I had covered homicide for a number of years at that point. I had done all kinds of different stories about homicide, and it's always a little funny to me because um, to me it was the final and in some ways easiest thing that I did while I was on that beat, and it seems to be the only one that stuck or got any attention. But I started covering crime in South L.A. probably in two thousand. To end of 2001, and did the homicide report sort of as a final, just something I was throwing up against the wall in 2007. And what was the agenda of the homicide report? The agenda was to overcome 
the man bites dog tilt that inevitably works its way into any work of journalism. The biggest story that I saw in crime was the dog bites man story, the the idea that this had been unchanging for so long and it seemed to be so structurally immured for so long, the disproportionate death rate from homicide. So I was trying to think of ways that would be novel, because novelty is the essence of news reporting, that would also make people see the lack of novelty, the kind of eternal picture of homicide. The blog got a lot of attention as sort of portrayed today as an effort to, you know, day by day cover and list every single homicide. At the time that I debuted it, the novelty of it was actually listing the race of every victim. That was somewhat controversial. I got some pushback on that. That's against the ordinary conventions of journalism. So that, it was naming the race of the victim that initially got attention and only secondarily the listing of all the homicides. For a while, I got the Los Filos Ledger or some one of these little penny saver things, and it had the most amazing police report because the person who was doing it picked a different detail for every single person right. in the report. So right. it was a Hispanic man attacked a man in a green sweater, <laughs> and then the next one would be a very tall man um, pulled a gun on a elderly woman. Every detail, every sociological marker was mixed up person by person. I thought that was, I had no idea if, That's if that exactly person was right. doing that, it on The police blotter was my template for the homicide report. Every reporter loves a police blotter. And uh, uh-huh. I kind of wanted to combine my interest in this, what I think sort of vast and complex problem with the most simple form of journalism that we all started with, the police blotter. Mm-hmm. And and by doing that, you ba- you essentially said race is this part of the story and that needs to be pointed out. And Jill does two things in this book. She, she gives an encyclopedic a look at what's going on in these neighborhoods in this time frame, but she also focuses on a single case. And by these neighborhoods... Well, ghetto side is what they call south of the 10. Perhaps you you should define the neighborhood. The neighborhoods that I write about in the book are uh, LAPD 77th Street Division. The 77th Street Station is just south of Florence on Broadway off the Harbor Freeway. And Southeast Station, which is down on 108th Street, just east of the Harbor Freeway. So if you're driving south on the Harbor Freeway, when you pass Florence, you're going by 77th. And when you pass Manchester and on to Century, you're you're right to the west of Southeast Station. And aside from giving us really a day-to-day chronicle of what's going on in these precincts, she also focuses on one murder trial, which is the murder of a police officer's son. It's one of many murders like it, but the police focus on it partly because it is the murder of a police officer's son, and we see the nitty-gritty of the solving of that case, and we understand how difficult it is to solve cases like this because, obviously, to speak out about a fellow, a neighbor, in when you live in a gang-ridden neighborhood, you're putting your own life at stake sometimes. But you also show that when they really do apply themselves, that the case, it was both easy and hard to crack. You said everybody in the neighborhood really knew what happened, but nobody would talk about it. That's the common 
case, right? But but this one detective Skaggs, who also is a great character, aside from being a, a very good policeman, stays on it doggedly, and he and he cracks the case. And and you show that it really makes a world of difference to the people in the neighborhood to get justice, which they so rarely get. In a day like today, when everyone's talking about all of these race issues and what what's causing this and that, and most of them do not work daily in the field as you do. They are making grand generalizations often on the media. I'm just wondering how you feel when you hear these politicians talk about what causes these issues. There's a huge amount of complexity to it, and there are huge dark areas of unknowns. There's lots of stuff that I wish I had better data on, things that I wish I knew. I guess one simple thing I can say is that, and and I wish I'd emphasized this more, I tried to and get aside, but residential segregation is the name of the game here. Residential segregation changes everything. It's hugely, hugely important in terms of the situation we have with policing and crime in this country, with race in this country, with everything that happened domestically in the latter half of the 20th century in the United States. And the result of the pronounced concentration and isolation of African Americans, and particularly low-income African Americans in urban neighborhoods in the U.S., is to create almost different worlds where many people will never call the police in their entire lives in this country, and other people deal with the police every day. And it's really hard to convey how high that wall feels when you experience it day to day, when you, you know, as I did go to press conferences downtown or then even the newsroom of the LA Times and then drive down to 77th Division at night. And many of the people who are frontline workers will talk about this too. It feels like there's a chasm of understanding between this part of America and a part where many people live in neighborhoods where they never even see a police car drive down their street And I've stood with people on the street in South L.A. when the police cars are passing every minute. I mean, it's a startling difference. One of the things I found most fascinating in your book was the following paradox, that so many people perceive the the ghetto areas as being over-policed. And yet what you posit in the book is, in fact, they're under-policed in the sense that these crimes occur, so many of the cops... Don't clear the cases because there's not enough political juice behind getting that done. Could you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, a a simpler way to put it would be over-policed for minor crimes, under-policed for major crimes, over-policed in particular for possession, and under-policed for violent acts, assault and homicide in particular. And uh, I think there's even... You know, the math on this is very interesting. The general truth about crime, if you average it out nationally, is that, of course, burglaries, minor crimes vastly outnumber violent crimes. And and so if you go to a typical American suburb, the police are dealing with huge numbers of 
people breaking into cars and bicycles stolen and so forth, and very, very small numbers of violent crime. There were times in the late 90s, early 2000s, where you could look at some of the divisions in South LA, and, and, and it was almost, it was, I can't remember, it was either close to being a reverse of that or right equal. You had a real, almost an equal number of violent and property crimes. That's a complete, again, a completely different world. And so if you are for example, devising a formula of how to spread police resources. You've got to figure out how to weight lots and lots of property crime versus a a small number of violent crime or a large number. It's very hard to weight that appropriately. You end up with a situation because policing is done according to these formulas of many more police officers per capita in neighborhoods where there's violence. But they still can be less than what the violent crime is because it's so um, it's so torqued from where the math is. I think, you know, the truth is property crimes are way underreported in those neighborhoods, and that's part of what's going on. But, but it goes again to what I first said. It's, it's different worlds, completely different worlds. What they're doing, what you just described, is, is preventative policing, isn't it? I mean, it's locking up the petty criminals in the belief that somehow that's going to prevent them from becoming felons or something right, like that. Right, But But to, to understand the underlying causes of what's going on in order to make the proper police policy, I'm sure that there's a, a great divisiveness of opinion about what, what the right policy should be. But, but you probably feel like you have a handle, you know, covering it day to day the way you do, possibly on what should be uh, the future for policing in South Los Angeles. One of the things that ghetto side is clearly on the side of is better investigations of violent crime and, again, simplifying greatly, we have a very weak investigative tradition in the United States going all the way back into the 19th century. We've never been really strong on an investigation on solving crimes. You can see this back to the makings of the republic. If you stop and think about criminal justice in the U.S., it's weird we have, you know, something like 18,000 police entities. We have uh, our highest crimes, murder, investigated by municipal entities and tried in states' courts. We have a federal system that deals with what the scholar William Stuntz called a marginal and exotic crime and a distribution of resources among those entities that is not quite matched up to what we think is important in terms of crime, or at least me. I consider murder a very high crime. And all of those municipalities are different, you know, so we have this fragmented, broken system. Well, there's reasons for all of that. If you go back into American history, we're just not really into the idea of a strong, centralized police state for reasons that are good and bad. And we've never had a strong investigatory tradition. If you go back into the early 19th century, the way violent crime was handled, people just kind of sued each other personally for the wrongs that happened against them. So so that combined with a very strong tradition of order policing that, again, goes all the way back to the 19th century, you get glimmers of this today. People still talk about vagrancy laws and how those used to work. It's astonishing to look at the way order policing functioned in the U.S. Even fairly recently in the 1950s, as I say in the book, a number equivalent to a tenth of the population of the city of L.A. 
was jailed every year by the LAPD. It's vastly higher numbers than are arrested today. I mean, they <clears> just <throat> swept the streets of people every night. So that's an example. One of the people I'm sort of, without naming them, contending with them, get us that is particularly Kelling, who was uh, one of the authors of Broken Window. I actually have a great deal of respect for Kelling. He was somebody who came out of social work and who had seen a lot of crime and suffering in, I think, public housing projects, and it was trying to think that out. One of the mistakes he makes, though, in my opinion, and for good reason because the data is very bad, is that police over-focused on violent crime, and that was one of the justifications for broken windows, that it shouldn't be just about the elephant hunters and the violent crime, that it should be about minor crime too. And I think I would quibble with that. We were never good at violent crime, and there was actually broken windows is something that is a new name for the way police have always been in the U.S. They mm. have always just swept people up from the streets like human litter. We're we have a police system that grew up around order policing to a very great extent, so that stays with us. This is Seth Greenland. I am here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We're talking to Jill Leovi, the Los Angeles Times reporter, about her book, Ghetto Side. Trump, of course, just announced that he's the law and order candidate. That's his new, going to be one of his new mantras. When you say that we have a poor investigative tradition and around crimes like murder, that obviously varies from place to place and time to time and case to case. I think John Benet Ramsey, how many hours of investigations has that case caused? Whereas, you know, the, the kind of it's Chinatown Jake saying, which runs through a lot of the kind of talk about policing in poor neighborhoods, which is, we don't have, this is not, this is not going to be investigated in part because of who the victim is. There's a victim-based level of investigation as well, right? Yes. I mean, I think an important point to be made about that is that's just, that's not just on the police. That's on the public. That's on the press. That's mm -hmm. on politicians. But it's also, it's very hard, even for me doing the homicide report, a lot of the um, quotidian, ordinary homicides that produce such devastating effects on the ground that happen day in and day out, they don't have the green sweatshirt. They don't differ a lot from each other in their details. It's very hard to write about those day in and day out and fit the conventions of a news story. There's not a lot new about them. Even Bryant Tonelli, who's the murder victim I, I uh, focus on in the book, in a lot of ways, and some of my police acquaintances said this to me in the book, it's the most ordinary homicide. There's nothing really extraordinary about the case that I describe in the book. There are scores and scores like it. And I should add, even the policeman's son thing, there was, Brian Tonelli was one of two policeman's sons that I covered or did research on while I was working on Genocide. There was another young man who was killed very shortly after Bryant, who was the son of a police officer also. And we should add that for the listener that Bryant was killed by a, another young man who was given a gun and told to go out and kill him to pr prove his you know, stats for the gang. I mean, right? I mean, that's just the most common. Yeah, we don't really know what 
what the uh, backdrop was. I talk about that in a little of the epilogue, but I think this is, is worth noting. It's it's actually really hard to get to the bottom of why murders are happening because the people who know are killers, and killers tend to have strong incentives not to tell the truth about what happened. So it's, when you're interviewing people in this world, it can be really hard to get down to brass tacks with them. How long did you embed to do the research that led to Ghetto Side? This two-part question. You know, I was sort of in and out of uh, LAPD precincts starting in 2002 all the way through 2009. Because with the deep diving that this research required, you you created a an effect in the book. The, the level of pure sadness that you convey that these homicides create is breathtaking and to be immersed in that as as a reporter at a certain point your objectivity must waver to some degree being surrounded by it to that extent well uh, objectivity is your emotional objectivity i mean yes. i guess i'm asking how how did it affect you to be around the effects of these killings i mean it, it does affect you you kind of have to be open about that Effect. I mean, you have to sort of just know that, yeah, it's super depressing and <laughs> it makes you weird. And you, you just, I don't think you suppress it. I don't think you hide it. I mean, objectivity, I, I tell this when I teach journalism school students, it, it makes me crazy when people sneer about um, journalists being objective because, of course, objectivity is a discipline. It's something you strive for always, and it's hard. It's a very, very difficult task that you have to police yourself constantly. And by by being dismissive of it, people are also being dismissive of the exertion that you have to put in every day to be objective. It is not easy. In this case, it's such an easy bias that I had in Ghetto Side. I think murder is awful and very, very sad. And I don't think uh, there's a there's a counter argument. And to there's that. no there? counter argument I mean, to that. There's nobody so, on the other side of that. So when you know and also I think just from pure cold logic, if you want to I mean murder is an extremity. It's demonstrably extreme. It weighs a certain way and everything else you do, it's, it makes a certain amount of sense to put it at the center of your exegesis of law enforcement. And, uh, and so it had a logic to it. I never felt that putting the mothers of dead sons first in my reporting got me off track too far because there's a logic in not desiring that young men be slaughtered in public places mm. in a major first world city. You know, it's not it's not actually a daring point of view or anything. <laughs> right. It's not a daring point of view, but it's it's so important to illuminate it, which you've done uh, and which few people have done as as well as you have. One thing that I took away from your book was and I think this is your idea, but as I restate it, I may change it a bit. Um, and if I do, I hope you'll correct me. But that as Seth said, you you get at the deep well of sadness and mourning that is just all pervasive in, in poor neighborhoods because so many people have been affected by murder. And one of the things I took away was that by addressing the crime of murder and taking it 
making it a priority about prosecuting it, you, it could be a way to make the community feel like they're on the same side as the police and that everybody is working together. Whereas if you police the small crimes that feel like intrusive, a punishing, you know, moralistic, you divide the community more. Would you say that is part of your idea? Yes. I think you can marshal more support. You can build more legitimacy if you build it on violent crime enforcement than other things. Preventive policing, I don't think it will ever go away. How how much you put into it and how far you spread the net is something that should be talked about. It's very expensive. You have to stop lots and lots and lots of people to find what, in the best case, the best cops are looking for, which is the gun in the car. And then they seize that gun and they can go home that night and think, maybe we stopped a shooting. You're going through a lot of ordinary people to get there. So it's you're, you're spreading your net wide. You're annoying and frightening many, many people to get there. Murder investigations are also very charged, very divisive. I mean, every homicide detective who has worked lots of cases will tell you they get hated by people who they are. It's, it's very intrusive. In, enforcement implies friction. It implies conflict. But at least it has a grounding in something that gets more general agreement that it's that a killer should be caught. Let it me has ask, a logical grounding. Yeah, let me ask you uh, a couple of questions about reception. The book has been um, very popular. There's been gotten a very large audience. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it. I'm going to give you my guess as to one reason why. I'm wondering if you overlapped with Sam Quinones. At, at I know times. Sam well. And we had him in to talk about his book about the opiate epidemic and uh, the heroin epidemic. And I think that that book was very well received, in part because it explained a phenomenon that doesn't write one more person dying from one more heroin overdose, unless it's Sam Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't isn't newsworthy in the same way that every murder is not necessarily newsworthy. But if you take the whole phenomenon and try to explain the larger phenomenon, that gives people a kind of handle, a way to, a way of understanding it. And I'm assuming that's part of why the book has been received so well. On the on the other side, I'm wondering if you've gotten any kind of blowback as a, as a white woman reporter. I know somebody said to me at some point, a, a black writer in Los Angeles saying, yeah, the most, most important book about uh, black Los Angeles is written by a white woman. Um, isn't that great? So d d are you getting any of that? And sure. Do you think sure, that's absolutely. Right? Absolutely. But I, uh, you know, uh, I was on Tavis Smiley's show and he came at me on that issue. And, and after the show was over, he, uh, he said, you know, I, I had to do that. And I said, I completely understand. I said, you have to understand, I've been a reporter in South L.A. for 10 years. Don't you think I've had this conversation <laughs> before? <laughs> it's, it's actually a conversation that I kind of had to have every day. It, you can't be thin-skinned if you do what I do. And you have to be as open-minded as you can be about the sensitivities and the long, long, long history of of ill will around these issues, and and why a lot of that is justified. It's, it's I even I find white writers on black subjects annoying. So I perfectly understand why people would find um, me annoying. <laughs> and I 
I hope more voices join the fray. The one thing I was going to say about your preamble to that is that it's the big picture, but it's also the small picture. And Sam is a great example of this. He is a dynamite street reporter, yeah, dynamite, absolutely. and and does things that that nobody else can do in terms of going to the sources, talking to people, seeing with his own eyes. It's very gratifying for me to see his book succeed, in part because it's a vindication for journalism as a lens here. I think journalism is a great way to engage these issues and maybe superior to some of the other disciplines we typically turn to in some ways. I use names, you know. Mm-hmm. I've been trained. You always fail, of course. I've been trained to seek objectivity, to try to hear extensively from both sides, from all sides, to track down whoever I have to track down, even when they don't want to talk to me, and make myself listen to them. And we're really in need of explanations that are rooted in that kind of qualitative reality in addition to the big picture, I think. Um, I hope this won't seem like a personal question, but I'm interested in what may have motivated you to pursue this profession the way that you have. That is very, very personal. (laughs) It seems like a calling to me of sorts. Can you talk about your... And I guess it seems like a calling in part because it's not everybody decides to immerse themselves in misery as a as a, as a way to make a living. You know, the journalism part is does not need an explanation. Doesn't everyone want to be a journalist? I had I was interviewing a uh, <laughs> someone in the criminal justice system who said to me, "Your job seems like fun. You get to talk to all different people every day and go different places." And I was like, "Well, actually, it's super fun. Of course, uh, all reporters love their jobs. I've, I've been very very lucky to have the career I have, and I'm also." I'm not really a team player kind of person, and journalism has allowed me to be that person. In terms of the misery, yeah, it's it's a mixed bag. It's funny. I knew from the f- first story I did on homicide in South L.A. that I was going to be doing this and that I was probably going to write a book and that this was the work I had to do. I just knew. You, it almost didn't feel like my choice. It's different to be a writer. It wasn't happening to me. And it can be very gratifying. This is the ultimate subject. Violence is impossible to convey. It's impossible to be proportional about. I was thinking about that a lot with the events of these weeks. It's not like you can say to somebody, well, the chances are very small if you're pulled over by the police that, you know, it'll end up, your hand will move the wrong way and they'll suddenly shoot you. So don't worry about it. the smallest chance of being murdered by another human being is an immeasurable terror, right? You can't you can't put that in the box. And the same for a police officer worried that maybe tonight's the night that he or she won't get home. It's you can't contain that fear. The fear of being murdered lives in the very center of our nervous system and is not containable. So writing about violence and writing about the fear of violence is a very steep challenge as a writer, which what it's what makes it interesting. And if you even manage to convey a little of it, it's it's rewarding. And I think that, you know, I always kept this in mind. I, I had talked to some people about sort of trauma. I've, I've made my own observations about trauma and silence and the inability to express. I got into trouble when I wasn't writing. As long as I could keep writing and keep making progress, 
I felt like work to me um, mm. and didn't feel like becoming mired in misery to me. Let's let's follow up on that a little bit. I mean, everybody is thinking about the police killing young black men these days because it's happening a lot. Is it happening more? Are we hearing about it more? Are we in a new epidemic? Is there a cure? I don't think we're in a new epidemic. I think that the numbers are bad. The numbers I would want don't seem to be very available. And I would add, and this is a little bit of a point of irritation for me, that all our numbers on homicide are bad. They're all, in fact, equally bad. I mean, if you work with homicide statistics like I have for years, you have two sets of numbers, the vital statistics from death records and coroner's office and the UCR, the Uniform Crime Reports. And there's lots of reasons, but I, like you just by 10, 20 percent, I mean, it's always fuzzy to get lethality from violence. And it's very frustrating when you need, when you do time series, which is a very important thing to do here. I think that it's very clear that there were huge numbers of killings of people and particularly young black men, the, the, the vulnerable group for all uh, violence statistics in the 60s and the 70s up to about 1980. Um, and also, by the way, huge numbers of cops who used to be killed on the job. Very, very pitch violence. I think the um, that it, it's come down from where it used to be, but it, that it may have ticked back up a little it used to be huge. It came way down, and it's may have gone up somewhat in the last few years. This is important for a couple reasons. It's important to realize that it's way down from where it used to be. But it's also important to know what incredible carnage that there was in recent memory. And my experience with homicide, like I say, it's not proportional it never goes away. I mean, people feel those homicides for the rest of their lives. I saw a study in the 70s that the LAPD conducted of police shootings of civilians around the nation. It showed some southern cities at that time had rates of people being killed by police that rivaled homicide rates, like overall homicide rates in the 90s. So, in black America, there is a long, profound memory rooted in reality of, you know, terrible carnage, terrible fear, unaddressed wrongs, and it matters. The history matters. You know, if you're going to argue that things have changed, you have to show why. If, if certain patterns today repeat those patterns in the past— it's hard to argue that there's no line of continuity that connects them. But at the same time, I myself, when I think about these issues, and I'm, I'm not going to form my idea about the general picture based on which videos surface when. That mm -hmm. is not yes, an intelligent right. way mm -hmm. to consider this. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the data is, it's, it's important to see the whole picture in the data. I have always looked at homicides by police homicides I've, I've, I've I always look at the vital statistics right. like overall death by violence is what you want to look at you want to bring it down let's make that simple and just by logic you want to bring it down the most for the highest group you don't want to concentrate your breast cancer efforts on men 
You want to go to the group that has the highest death rates. And so we want to, you know, focus on making young black men safe because if you bring down their death rates, that's going to have more impact on the overall numbers of violent lethality than anything Mm -hmm. else. In the years since you began the research that led to this book, the homicide rate among black men in Los Angeles has dropped significantly. You write that in the book. Hugely. To what do you attribute that? Of course, it's gone up again recently. I mean, but not to previous levels. No, no, nowhere near to previous levels. But I have to say, I'm really depressed about that. I didn't think that was going to happen. I'm surprised. I think it's very alarming, and uh, it's interesting to try to figure out what's going on. I mean, I I've immersed myself in these numbers for years and years and years, and I am extremely puzzled and confused by them. And I maybe I'm just more dense than other people, but I think we should all be puzzled and confused. Nobody knew why crime went up in the early 90s. Nobody knew why it came down. None of the reasons really hold. I say in the book that I thought that that an increase in certain kinds of, of public welfare benefits and the somewhat easing of residential segregation based on race. In, in, in California, we see that with kind of the, the what used to be our inner city moving out to like Riverside County and San Bernardino and are the reasons why you've seen it go down. But I don't know what what's happening now. I, uh, I, I'm surprised that it's up again. At, at the end of the book, you offer several prescriptions for dealing with this plague. And one of the things you write is that autonomy counters homicide. Right. W- what do you mean by that? I'm glad you asked me that question, because to me, I was, I've been sort of waking, waiting for someone to take me up on this. One of the, I think, more counterintuitive ideas in Ghetto Side and also goes against shibboleths on both the right and the left. I am kind of against community. And in fact, whenever I hear the word community, I kind of I kind of stiffen because community can mean a lot of things and being communal historically has not necessarily meant being immune from violence. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So what I say in ghetto side is that you can look at elevated rates of criminal violence in Black America and actually in some other isolated, segregated parts of the country as self-policing, as informal justice, as actually sort of systematic ways that people deal with issues like control and retribution without the benefit of formal law. And all of those things happen, I think, with more intensity First of all, when there's segregation, when there's geographic isolation, and when economically in particular people are living in networks, that they're surviving in ways that are very, very networked. So imagine that all your neighbors who you're very community-oriented with and you do nice community projects with, that you had to work for them as well, that you had to depend on them for your economic survival that you had to make deals with them to get by every day, and that you had no law to adjudicate any disputes with them. And ask yourself, would your relations with those neighbors be different than the nice community picnic that you organized once a year? It's a hard one because the history of Black America is that they've been forced to rely on the considerable resourcefulness of Black communities the book is Ghetto Side. The author is Jill Leovi. Jill, thanks for coming on the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you. 
thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience. Our crack production assistant is Ernesto Orleano. Mary Alexa Kavanaugh is the czar of scheduling. Thanks to associate producer Jim Lane. Thanks to Jill Leovi. We record this show at Emerson College every week, and our thanks to them. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. And if you're so inclined when you're downloading, go to iTunes and give us a rating. It helps draw attention to the show and means we'll be around longer. Lori? How many stars should they give us? I think as many as are available. Okay, so like 30? 30 would be good. Okay. Yeah, however many they can... uh, conjure up. Absolutely. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.